0: Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast,
1: featuring leadership author and podcaster Carrie Newhoff and Barna President David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman.
0: Well, welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. It's Carrie Newhoff here, and we're so glad to be able to welcome you as leaders. We have, uh, well, one of my favorite leaders, thinkers, uh, theologians, apologists. I don't know what else you can say, but the one and only Tim Keller on Church Pulse Weekly today. And David Kinnaman and I sit down with Tim and talk about all things personal and also pandemic and the future. As I think a lot of you know. Uh, Tim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last May and May of 2020. So he is uh, definitely somebody who has been uh, having a crisis within the crisis, like a lot of you have. And we wanted to talk to him about it, number one, because we love Tim and we want to see how he is. And number two, because we wanted to explore, you know, how do you handle uh, compounding crises? And then, of course, we get into what Tim talks about Uh, so well, which is the future of the church and a a good understanding of what's changing, what's staying the same, and so much more. And as most of you know, Tim is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, which started in 1989. He and his wife, Kathy, founded it with their three young sons. For 28 years, he led this very diverse congregation of young professionals, grew it to about 5,000. And his latest book, Hope in the Times of Fear, covers the resurrection accounts of Jesus in the Gospels as the most Dramatic and impactful stories ever told. He's also the founder of Redeemer City to City and has a huge heart for cities and church planting, as does Barna. That is why Barna is partnering with Glue to kick off a new initiative to do research on a local city level. This is really exciting and provide powerful new and free tools to unite and equip churches to effectively reach and engage young people in their communities and just people in their communities. So this is fun. For those of you who are listening from uh, some different cities, okay, South Florida, Columbus, Kansas City, and Dallas-Fort Worth, we are launching some initiatives in those cities starting this April. Now, I'm going to be helping by hosting these events live, and we'll be joined by David Kinnaman and other great guests. So I would love to personally invite you, if you're a leader in any of these cities, that is South Florida, Miami area, Palm Beach, um, Columbus, Kansas City, and Dallas-Fort Worth. Please join us, and to learn more, simply go to churchpulseweekly.org. Well, with all that said, let's jump into the conversation David Kinnaman and I have had with Tim Keller. Tim Keller, welcome back. It's so good to have you.
1: I'm glad to be with you. I wish we could do this face-to-face, but uh, this is way better than nothing.
0: Yes it is. It is. It is. And we got that opportunity last time and don't take it for granted anymore like, you know, perhaps we would have in the past. Well, the world has changed an awful lot since February of 2020 and your world, as I'm sure many of our listeners would know, has changed dramatically. Um what would you say has changed most profoundly in your personal journey? You got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, have been going through that. I would just love to know over the last year what What are you thinking about day-to-day?
1: Well, yes. The the day after I found out I did have cancer, um, which was in May of last year, I uh, sat down and uh, two words came to me as I was meditating and praying. Don't forget, I'm Presbyterian and, you know, not Pentecostal. So when you get words, when you're Presbyterian, you really better write them down. (laughs) you don't usually don't get words <laughs> and um they were uh your sanctification and focus and what that meant was first of all it was um and David knows this because uh his wife's been through this with a very very i also it's a similarly very bad cancer um the time is I'm not gonna die tomorrow you know i've got I've got some time left but it's it's very limited and uh so the Number one, I, I, I realized that I needed to focus on certain things. I had to figure out what that was. I would say that a, a man who was, was 69 years old, I actually was pretty unfocused because the reality is it doesn't matter whether you have cancer or not. When you're approaching 70, you should actually know the time is short. You don't really have decades anymore. You've got years anyway. And so I should have been more focused, but I was tending to do whatever anybody asked me to do. Like most ministers get in the habit, years, you know, Before, you just do, you're a nice person, you're a minister, so you do whatever anybody asks you to do. And um, I had no focus, I really didn't, I wasn't saying, what what do I really, if I only had one year left, two, three, four, five years, what should I be doing? I didn't have that focus, now I did. Secondly, the word sanctification was that God was, was saying, if you would die of a heart attack at the age of 73... That wouldn't work because if you've got two years left or three years left, you're really not holy enough for what I have for you. You're not close enough to me. You're you're not dependent enough on me. Too much of your faith is abstract. And therefore, I'm not going to take you suddenly by a stroke or a heart attack. I'm going to give you a really serious cancer. Uh, so that you are going to the last part of your year of your life, you will be living with the prospect of death all the time in a way that you wouldn't, if you were taken suddenly. And therefore, why, why would he do that? Because he says, actually, you're not holy enough for what I have for you left to do. So, and you know, it made perfect sense. It was scary. You, 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 you sit down and you say, this isn't right. You know, Kathy, always oh, said, I thought when we turned 70, we'd feel a lot older. And we didn't. And we were ready to go and ready to do all the sorts of things. So why? Why? This seems unfair. And then as soon as I thought about it, I said, actually, this makes perfect sense. I mean, God probably has 100 million reasons why he's doing this to me. And I can only disturb one or two. But the two even I saw make ridiculous amount of sense. I said, of course. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's changed. I mean, a lot has changed. The focus and just... Being drawn, just being pushed toward God in a way it wasn't before.
2: Thanks so much for sharing with us, Tim. And, you know, these, uh, these windows into these moments for you. Uh, I've been, been trying to be faithful in, in, uh, in a similar journey with my wife's glioblastoma
1: yeah.
2: of, uh, le- leading as publicly and as openly and unafraid as we can about, uh, all that. And it has been, you know, this, this, uh, revealer of what I try to control. Where, where real control comes from and, and what doesn't, what we do and don't really have impact on. And uh, it's been a, a thing that's softened my heart for you know the, the, the place of the church uh, and how we can really minister to people in their place of deep need and, and also really recognizing through the pandemic. It was almost like as soon as the pandemic hit, it's like, wow, I've got three years I've been practicing what it looks like to, to lead through crisis because my wife's had uh, a terminal brain, brain tumor. And uh, so anyway, it's been uh, too too many lessons to compress into to a couple minutes, but I appreciate you sharing that with us.
0: You uh, wrote a very powerful piece. You've written a lot of powerful pieces, but your most recent piece in the Atlantic on death and dying, uh, I thought was very, very helpful. You said something interesting I just want to pick up on. I, and, and if I got it slightly wrong, let me know. But you know, God is doing this to me. It's interesting. That sort of pushes at the theodicy. I'd love your... Uh, take on suffering. Um, I thought what you quoted from, was it Charles Taylor was really helpful in the Atlantic? And how are you rethinking suffering?
1: The word rethinking is interesting. I mean, rethinking could mean I'm just going back through what I thought before. Hmm. That's closer that rethinking sometimes can mean um, uh, thinking a new way about it in a different way. I actually don't think I am thinking about it a different way. I mean, I I think most of what I believed about suffering was more head knowledge and I hadn't really made it operational in my, in my life. That's, that's the main burden of the, um, the article that you read hmm. was to say when I went back and looked at what I believed about suffering, I did write a book on suffering, a whole book <laughs> with Johnny, with Johnny Erickson was kind of an expert on suffering said it was the best book she'd ever read on it, which she told me that personally. And I was thinking, Oh wow. All right. I mean, that, that's a high compliment. And yet I, you know, I hadn't suffered as much as Johnny Erickson. So I hadn't used a lot. Of it. I mean, you, what well, you have, you've got a couple things. The, the Bible, um, Christianity, A, is the only religion that gives you a God who actually has suffered. I mean, have to be very careful with the Trinitarian language here <laughs> because Jesus Christ, you know, was the son of God. And, he experienced suffering in his human nature. Okay, I, I do know all that. So when all the letters come in from the Trinitarian, you know, the Trinitarians, um, you know, you can say Tim understands that. Um, on the other hand, you know, Jesus Christ still has a body. That is that is the teaching of all Christian churches, uh, all Orthodox churches. And it still has the nail prints. Uh, so when Hebrews said says, You have a God. You have a savior who has experienced whatever you're experiencing. There's no other religion that gives you that. Have you ever lost a child? Have you ever lost a son? You know, outlived a son. Well, God has. <laughs> have you ever been betrayed by your best friends? Well, G- you know, Jesus has. See? have you ever uh, faced certain a certain painful death? Yes. I mean, so first of all, you've got someone and, and Hebrews says go to him because he knows he's he's been through it uh and then secondly you also have a god who is going to heal all suffering at the end of time and then therefore in the end uh and one one way to one way to put this is is if jesus christ really rose from the dead if he really really rose from the dead so that that means that that the the teaching of the gospel in the bible is true so if he really rose from the dead guess what everything's going to be okay in the end, everything's gonna be okay. David's gonna be okay. Carrie's gonna be okay. My my wife is gonna be okay. David's wife is gonna be okay. It's it, we're gonna, it's everything's gonna be fine. So you put those two things together. You've got a God who actually knows suffering I can go through now when I'm in the midst of it, and then I can know that eventually just hold on because it's gonna be okay. And I, I the other religions of the world actually don't they don't offer that sort of thing even people that believe in paradise, we're talking about a new heavens and new earth. Christianity is saying, when we say everything's going to be okay, that means this world's going to be restored. We're not going to get a consolation for the loss of this world. We're actually going to get the world. So, uh, okay, so you say rethinking. Rethinking meaning I just have to go back and think again through all the stuff I already believe. I didn't change it at all. I, I, I had to appropriate it. I had to make it, something that helped me get through the day. And and uh in that sense, yes, I rethought it. But basically I, I don't think right now the word rethink usually means I've changed and I, I haven't, which is weird. You know why? Because it's so it's so it's such a the Christian theology of suffering, the biblical theology of suffering is so potent. It's just sitting there unused by most people. So God has just said, nope, go get it, go use it.
0: You mentioned unfocused, which kind of surprised me, to be honest with you. I I think of you as very focused. Um, Any more on that? And then if you could go back a decade, 15 years, pick a time window, is there any way you would have changed your focus or become more focused, knowing what you know
1: now? I think what it means is that there are the things that you know you want to be trying to spend most of your time doing. And then there's things everybody else asks you to do. Now maybe maybe listen maybe you are, will be different maybe you'll be different um, than me. I would think most people are like this though. I mean I'm an oldest child, um, and so I'm kind of like I'm the. I mean there's a lot of ways in which I'm probably worse than most people at trying to please people and keep them happy. Uh, I'm certainly worse than my wife. My wife is way better at saying I just can't do that. You know, and knowing the person's going to be unhappy with her, and I—that's harder. So it's harder for me. Therefore, that might be why I'm more focused. But basically, when I say unfocused, meaning it didn't mean I didn't know what I should be doing. It's just that I never get to most of it because I was too busy with people who would say, "You know, you can help me so much if you would write this, look at this, come speak here, and do this." So, I—I I honestly think that—that's uh, what I meant that I just wasn't able to be disciplined enough. And here's, the, here's a gift about this. It's not only that I can really see that I have become more focused, but actually, frankly, the people around me are allowing me to do that. I mean, we're all selfish. We all say, look, I know you're so busy and I, I hate to ask you this, but you know, could you please do this for me? And uh, now people are actually being a lot more careful about about it. So, anyway, that's what I meant by focus, I think.
0: Do you have a sense of what you want to zone in on over the next couple of years, what you really want to devote your time and energy to?
1: Well, it now here's the thing you actually do know about that because we talked about it last time we talked. Hmm. So, so many of the things we talked about saying that there is a, and maybe we can talk more about it now, yeah. there really has been a cultural shift. Yes. And it's not just a cultural shift, actually, there's a cultural breakdown which maybe we want to talk a little bit about, um, that that therefore older ways of doing evangelism and Christian formation, I think, are, in this country, are becoming obsolete. And so the truth is not, we're, I mean, we're not going to change the truth, but how we impart it, how we shape people with it, how we recommend it. So all the things we talked about before, maybe you should say, okay, did the pandemic changed those things. I know you're going to get to questions like that, you can. But basically, I would say, um, the things I talked to you about before, that's what it really would, what most concerns me, that the church is not able to form its own young people growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the world is catechizing them in a way that we're not. And then secondly, even the way we do apologetics and evangelism, I think is just it's just going to uh, it's just gonna have to change. And we talked about that so we can talk about it more right here if you want.
2: I'd love to hear uh, one one thought about ways you think that the church could better catechize young people. A lot of my life's work has really been focused on understanding this massive gap of those under age 40 and really under age 30 today, what are often called millennials and gen z, and I'm just convinced that we we've we've lost the heart of of so many of these young people. The, the data to bear that out, but even even those who are in the church are sort of being formed and malformed by culture. Uh, what do you think some of the the reasons for that are and what would be a way we could think differently about that um, as church leaders?
1: Well, I think I may, I think I may have actually even used this illustration with Carrie last time. I can't remember, but um, that's okay because we, we've got a, uh, it's a new time and we have to talk about it again. Um, I think I may have mentioned, if you look at the real catechisms, I'm not saying that we have to actually write literal catechisms. So maybe we do but the real catechisms the older ones they you know it's a question and answer. So if you go back and look at Luther's catechism, Calvin's catechism, Westminster, Heidelberg, all the various ones that were written during the reformation, you'll notice things like this. You'll notice that they 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 ask very they make two or three questions about the trinity. But then they'll ask you 10 questions about justification or the sacraments or the lord's supper and things like that. And the reason is because you never catechize; you never really are just only um, teaching people what the Bible says. You're also inoculating them against the, the the dominant alternative. So if you were not a Protestant Christian in Europe in the 16th century, you'd be Catholic. In other words, the, the alternative to being catechized as a Protestant was you would be a Catholic. That's the reason why. The catechism actually was inoculating you against the counter narrative Now, Catholics and Protestants have this very same beliefs about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, etc., but they don't have the same beliefs about salvation, ju- how you receive salvation, justification, you know, the Lord's Supper, and things like that. And therefore, the catechisms are actually not just shaped by what the Bible says, but also what the alternative narratives are. I would say today, the alternative narratives, we are... Our uh, the way we train younger people doesn't take on the identity narrative or the freedom narrative or the science narrative or the you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, They they they're very very profound narratives and and they're getting them they're getting them dozens of times a day in all sorts of ways. Uh, And and unless we to me here's what inoculation inoculation is giving people a little bit of the disease but also one that actually uh, stimulates the antibodies, right? That's that's. I mean, I just got vaccinated, by the way, about uh, the COVID, so I'm just reading about that. And so what you want to do is you want to not just talk about the Trinity, but you want to say, how does the doctrine of the Trinity actually differ from what people say about human life today? I mean, how does it, uh, or what, what, what the Bible says about the gospel, how is that different than the identity narratives that are out there, that your primary identity is something that, You find in yourself or your primary identity is a racial one is that your primary primary identity and you have to we're going to have to have to engage those things in the way in which we do doctrinal training because the kids that they're being engaged so you actually you really can't just give them the kind of traditional doctrine that we've been given for 500 years and then hope that they make the connection you have to say if you believe this, and this is true, then this doesn't work over here, and so that's that uh, we, we I, I don't I haven't seen almost any material that actually does that it's all uh it looks abstract, but it's basically based on by and large most most evangelical churches are re- really still trying to teach kids how not to be Catholic. That's actually not their biggest problem
2: <laughs> so interesting, and I couldn't agree more I, I think I'm just observing that so much of your work in the city, in New York, and a world of ideas and in a world of, um, you know, so many people who are, who are socially and financially climbing and, and the, the, sort, of the uh, con- sort of the contest for how faith fits into our largely secular age um, gives you a, a context for that. And for me, what I've uh, observed about this generation is that screens are discipling them. That is, is sort of the primary means by which they're being catechized. By social media and and technology and entertainment, and so the the average church in not in New York City is now dealing with pressures that uh, would have been would have been the case you've been dealing with for, yeah. for many years, and so we really do need a, a complete reframe of the kinds of you know to use Jesus metaphor the the the, the wine skins of helping to invest in younger generations. So it's a it's a the way you describe that is very inspiring to me, and I think it's so important.
0: Yeah, in some ways, you know, we talked about uh, identity. I remember that very clearly from our conversation a year ago how uh, people are seeing everything now through the lens of identity, whether it's gender identity, sexual identity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that the gospel actually addresses that. So, in many ways, our earlier conversation talked about disruptions that were happening and then COVID hit and everything got accelerated. To what extent, what do you see? accelerated, like any thoughts on because obviously the world has changed. but like, I mean, what what has got your attention now over the last year from a leadership theological perspective that perhaps got accelerated or changed by the pandemic?
1: well, i th- I think the things that were happening before are going to continue to happen. I don't think it's completely clear to me yet how the pandemic is disrupting those trajectories. I don't think they're reversing any of them. i d- I don't believe the pandemic's reversing them. But some will be accelerated, some will be decelerated, and some will just be thrown off the older track. I mean, I'm just trying to think. So, for example, uh, we did not talk about this, Kerry. And uh, okay. one of the problems with even getting into this one is because it's actually, unfortunately, political. But the reality is that the middle class is sort of going away. Yeah. And the reason is, and there's a fair amount of good research that I believe in, is that is that basically... Uh, Wage, wager. How do I say? Labor is not as valuable as assets. Mm-hmm. So the people who can live off of their investments um, are pulling away from the people who have to go out and earn a living. You know, with wage. Wow. And and so and, that, and that's getting that we know the pandemic we know has made that worse because we de- we definitely know that very wealthy people have become far wealthier during the pandemic, virtually almost everybody who's really wealthy and has enough money to have you know a portfolio out there they've just done extraordinarily well and we do know that that there's a big for a lot of reasons why blue collar labor is just I a mean, bit problem blue collar labor has been hit so hard there's a lot of jobs that may not come back and and so there's just one example of the of the, the growing economic inequality that is really fueling a lot of the problems uh, politically is not it, in any ways getting worse. Uh, on the other hand, we just think about another one is, um, well, I guess on identity. Okay. Here's a change, Gary. It's a change. Um, one secular identity approach, which is non-Christian of course, is I call the therapeutic model, which is you look inside, you find out your deepest desires and whatever's in there, you decide that's the real me. You don't, you don't, identity is not found in God or in my family or in my duties. It's found in, I want to see my deepest desires. and I have to realize those desires. And that's my identity. The other, another approach, which we already knew about before was, um, if I am a a minority, that's my main identity, which means, in other words, because I'm, I'm not white, I'm not male, I'm not straight. Um, there's a there's a virtue in that. And so my primary identity is I am a um, um, I've been a marginalized person. And that's that's another approach, which I think is certainly not the Christian approach. But here's the other thing is Christian nationalism, which is a fusion of America. OK, of course, the Canadians have no problems with this because they're just so sanctified here. But we Americans have this. Well, actually, you you don't have the same problem. Um, and the reason for that is the evangelicalism in Canada is too small. Very small. It's too small for this to have happened. But down here where it's bigger is you now have a, a number of people who are saying you're not a real American unless you're a white Protestant Christian. We don't want Muslims here. We don't want all these immigrants here. And you're getting a few, it's really a kind of, it's a new a new identity politics, only it's a right-wing identity politics. And it's a fusion of Christianity with being a white American. And so in so there's that one. There's the therapeutic individualistic one. There's the kind of progressive victim one. And now there's a right-wing one. And they're all um, what we would call in Christianity, they're all identity heresies. I mean, they're, they're all ways of thinking about identity that are really, really uh, very destructive. We think they're destructive to the people who are adopting them as their primary identities. And all of them are absolutely against what the Bible says, how identity works. And so that's a change. I I wouldn't even have said that a year ago with you, that right wing kind of identity. Um, And yet there they are. So in a sense, nothing is stopped, but there, some things are going faster. Some things are going slower and some things are kind of taking, taking some detours. But they're all kind of all of our political and cultural and economic crises are still heading in that direction. But we don't completely know yet how the pandemic is changing things, but they it is still changing things pretty profoundly, but not not reversing anything.
2: One of the things we saw in our uh tracking research is this the profound impact that the pandemic has had on pastoring and on uh, leading. Leading congregations, which is which is primarily about bringing people together, was well, about a lot yeah. of things, but but the expression of that is yes. is on Sunday morning worship. Yeah, and so um, we saw in our data three in ten pastors say they've seriously considered uh, quitting this year, um, and and speak about um, h- how you find our um, yeah. s- sort of deepest, truest calling in ministry, and a time when things sort of all bets feel like they're off.
1: Yeah. Now, now you're talking to person who actually, because I was retired, I'm retired, you know, I mean, I stepped out of being a leader of a church three years ago. So I'm not actually experienced in this, but I mean, I I can certainly speak to it because I'm talking to plenty of folks. So I I do have to say uh, to Kathy, I said, you know, I got pancreatic cancer, but at least I'm not actually a working pastor right now. (laughs) I mean, I've said that some days. Uh, I said, man, I would not want to be out there trying to pull things together. Here's the thing, Dave and Carrie. Like, there's not a single pastor recently that anybody has said you're doing a great job. Mm. It, it's been because n- nobody is doing a great job because it, nobody's. There's no wins. I mean, in the very, very beginning, when you went online, there did seem to be a little bit. I say, oh my goodness, we have, you know, we have a church of three hundred, but a thousand people are watching us every every Sunday. Well, after a while, people begin to realize, okay, here's a thousand people that they are watching, but we don't know if that one person is five, got five folks in a family at home. And we also don't know if that one person is somebody in Iowa who's just tuning into your church in New York because they used to go, you know, in other words, and you begin to realize we still actually don't really know who we've got and what's going on. And basically, I think the main thing is not only is everybody tired, uh, but nobody's getting any positive affirmation. See, yeah. almost always you've got some wins every year, some things, how isn't it great? The Lord's doing this and the Lord's doing that. And like, oh, no, almost nobody's getting any pats on the back. Nobody's saying this is great. Um, so you're you're just running and running to try to keep things together, and there's no, there's no hugs, literally no hugs. Yeah. So it's it's like uh you're get, they're getting absolutely no no affirmation. Um, and there have been, uh, and also there's, uh, there, there's, you know, there are, there's just a tremendous amount of loneliness, a feeling of being separated from so many people that we care about. We just can't live this way. So I, on the other hand, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure that pastors are necessarily more depressed than everybody else. Because a young, you know, teenagers, a friend of mine, son just tried to commit suicide, 16 years old not not all that unusual not up here in new york an awful lot of the kids are just feeling cut off and like there's no hope and so yeah anyway it's the the biggest problem is you don't really know who's with you who's really left who's coming back you don't really get any kind of real decent feedback and the zoom we can talk a little bit about about remote zoom call stuff mm-hmm. um it it is way way better than nothing way way better but at the same time it's still not we're in our we have bodies and we we really do need to be in the presence of each other i think so
0: yeah we uh we i want to be respectful of the time and i definitely want to talk about your new book uh which is which is about hope (laughs) in uh in the face of difficulty and fear um but let's talk a little bit about digital church i think almost every church is now online and uh, probably, you know, as David has written about at uh, Barna, um, hybrid church appears to be a big part of the future. I'd love your thoughts on that. What are the limits? What are the potentials? What are, what are the dangers, the traps? Huh.
1: Well, let me, let me go to the, let me, let me be negative and then dial it back. I don't know if I should do it that way. Maybe I should be positive and dial it back. But <laughs> wait, for example, um, Dr. David Martin Lloyd Jones, um Was it was just a tremendous preacher? For those of you, my guess most of, most of your audience will know who he is. But he was a British preacher uh in a big church in London, the heart of London, for many years, basically through World War II, in the fifties and sixties, and even in the seventies, I think it was. And he he preached the big congregations for a long time. He resisted allowing his sermons to be recorded, and the um, the reason for that was uh, and for, uh, we're all very grateful eventually he allowed himself to be recorded. But his argument was pretty hard to refute. um it wasn't a good enough reason not to listen. i mean, not to not to record them. but what he said is, do you really think that if you are walking along or driving in your car and listening to a sermon that it will have the same shaping impact on you as if you were in the presence of the of the congregation? Uh, you 're in the presence of the minister who 's preaching you have been uh, you 've been praying together in you know body next to body next to body audible you 've been praying together you 've been singing god 's praises together and then the minister speaks to you do you really think you 're going to be as shaped by the sermon by the Word of God as you 're driving on your car as you would be if you were in that spot in the body in front of you know in the gathered community He says of course not and you know when when he says that you begin to say of course he's right. And by the way, I've been on just like you have a zillion Zoom calls, and the reality is it is still easier. I mean, you know you're really only this sorry, guys, you're only about this part. If I was in your presence, you would actually be mine you would you would fill my field of vision. You don't. You're like this, and everybody knows that people do look at their email during Zoom calls. And they do. In other words, you are not as present. You just simply are not. And yet, it's so much better. I keep thinking, boy, ten years ago, we just these would be conference calls on the phone. It, it is still better because I'm actually seeing faces, and so I'm seeing your body. And I think I'm, we're incarnate beings, and beings, and even seeing a person's body is better than just listening to their their voice. Nevertheless, it, the the there is uh, it will it can't replace. I'll give you another, one more example. of This. Hmm. Uh, it can't replace in-person experience. Therefore, what's, on the other hand, it does reach a whole lot of people. Let me give you two examples. I've been teaching students. And uh, I teach preaching. I teach ministry students in the city. On the one hand, the Zoom the Zoom only, which is what we've done, is really helpful because people's lives are so busy. They are so crazy and busy that the I get perfect attendance every time. And before that, you know what, listen, honestly, people trying to juggle all the stuff they're juggling and still get ministry training in the city is um, they, you know, I, always I had about 10 to 15% of the people could never make, you know, it was always some uh, absenteeism and they, and they didn't like, so this, they, a lot of them say this is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, they also realize that though they're, they're, they're staying with me, They're not getting to know each other. That's a big problem. They're not getting to know each other, which is a very big part of um, being part of a... If you're in a class of 15, uh, other people who are learning preaching and you live in the same in New York City, at least four or five of those people are going to become real good friends and they're really going to be a big help to you. But what's happening with the Zoom is they're not becoming really good friends. They're all getting me really well. And I'm not even sure, frankly... That they're, if, if, if anything, I would say the vertical, you might say the relationship, to getting the content from the minute, from the instructor is probably almost as good, if not a little better, because there's a, there's a discipline to it and nobody misses. But when it comes to the horizontal aspect of, of the education, it's a lot worse. And so all I'm trying to say is something in the middle, brothers. Mm. Uh, I, think, I think we can probably draw a lot more people in evangelistically if we're really smart on how we use a uh, digital church. I do not think we should just go back to the way it was. I think there's a ton of people out there who are more online than they used to be. And they're more afraid of commitment than they used to be. And this is perfect for reaching a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't even know anything about your church. On the other hand, uh, is, well, here's my last example. Kate Bowler, uh, you might know who she is. She's a Duke University. Is she? She teaches at Duke Divinity School. She's got stage four colon cancer, I think. She's got some kind of cancer. Young mother. Um, she's kind of making it right now. But once I met her at one point and she said, the thing that's frightening to her is that because she's written a couple of books on her cancer and all that, thousands of people through the internet are trying to say, oh, you're helping me so much. And she's come to realize that people are so disembedded from community that they're, try- they're looking to her. As a celebrity sufferer, to minister to her and she, to minister to them, and she's saying, "You can't do that. You need a community." And she's realizing, and she's talking to all these other people who are suffering like she is, and they've got cancer. They don't have communities like they mm-hmm. used to. They, it, things are so mobile; they're not near extended family. They're not near. They just they they're all alienated from the church. They don't like the church, so they don't have any community. And she said, "I'm sorry." On a web a website for, you know, for a celebrity sufferer is not going to be what you need. If you've got cancer, you need somebody to make you chicken soup. You know, I can't do that. You need somebody to do those things for you. And, and so that's what makes, makes me say, I think we're going to be somewhere smack in the middle that mm-hmm. when it's all over, we're going to say, there's a lot of things we can do digitally that are actually going to involve more people. We're going to be able to do better education. We're going to do, be able to do better outreach. And yet at the same time, we 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 have to use the digital to woo people into face-to-face relationships or they're not really going to be changed by the gospel.
0: It's interesting, you know, because I, I think you're totally right about community. And I'm sure you get those letters to, you know, Tim, I'm really struggling with X. And, you know, I when I get them, it's like you need to talk to somebody who knows you and know, knows the situation, right? Like, I don't know. Uh, here, Here's a question for you. One of the critiques of large church, and you pastored a very large church, you're there with hundreds or a thousand other adults. That's not really community either. Arguably, you're in a moment, you're in an experience. One of the trends that's emerging is what we might call micro churches or distributed gatherings where perhaps we're not in a building owned by the church, but I could be gathering in my home with 10 other Christians and perhaps a neighbor who's experiencing Jesus for the first time. So it's like an iteration of small group. Um, any any thoughts on that? And then perhaps you're, you're watching digitally, but you're gathered in person. This is like post-vaccine, all that stuff.
1: Well, it's a little, yes, it's a little too impermanent is the big problem. Mm. One, one, one of the things I know that here's where you, you don't want, you want to say to Christians, are you really being shaped by what the Bible says or by your culture? The culture is anti-institutional in the extreme. And, and what is an institution? It's something that actually, um, keeps going when the people are gone. Because <laughs> the institution has its own, its own, uh, its own being. And one of the big problems we've, uh, over the years, every, I'll tell you, I've been here 32 years. We still haven't had a really great house church movement in New York City. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, What what is the impermanence? People get very excited, but if you is a it's a mobile world now, and and something that really is just changing your life. Oh my goodness! And suddenly, half the people move away over a six month period, and it falls apart. And there's no there's no bigger community that you can go to to form another one or to be part of, and then you feel left out. So rather than micro church, I still think though. Every city needs an ecosystem in which you have all-sized churches. And I would just speak, a church of five or 6,000 can do things that no other church can do, and they do them for the whole city. You can; They can start counseling centers. They can start church planning centers. They can start things that everybody in the city gets to use. On the other hand, as a minister, Carrie, you're absolutely right that there's a huge number of people that hide in a big church. They say, that's my church, but they're really not being formed by it. They're just too, they're really around the edges of it. So in general, I would certainly say that in general, in general, a city would be far better served and and the individuals in the church would be far better served by 10 churches of 500 rather than one church of 5,000. The neighborhoods would be reached better. The people in them would be deployed better and pastored better in general. And yet, if you think I'm saying that, there sh- that no, the city should never have churches of 5,000, actually every church, every city needs big churches. So there we go.
2: I'd love to draft back and talk just a little about uh, the journey of suffering and that I've been on uh, this last four years with my wife's uh, d- disease and then her passing in October. And I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I've, have been really benefiting from the book, you and Kathy, your wife wrote, um, uh, the songs of Jesus, a da- daily meditation in the Psalms. And, uh, for, for, me, at least, um, the Psalms have been one of the f- few places in scripture I can go routinely because it does express this full range of a God I can believe in who can sort of be a recipient of all my anger and frustration and loss and questions, and also my deepest uh, place of trust and hope. And, um, I just love to know what your what your rhythms have been like since your diagnosis. Uh, you, you alluded a little bit to this uh, in the Atlantic article, but love to hear you tell our listeners a little bit how, how you're finding peace and solace and to, to what extent you are uh, in scripture and in your faith during this time.
1: Well, um, Cat, Cat, first of all, Kathy and I, I'll just tell you exactly what we do when it comes to just the, the nuts and bolts. Kathy reads three chapters. We, we do the McShane reading calendar, which is a way to get through the Bible in a year. I read four chapters a day, which gets you to the Old Testament once and New Testament twice in a year. Kathy reads three chapters a day. Um, that's all she can take in, she said. But we, but we do the three chapters she reads. I'm reading too, so it's a way of saying what's God saying to us today. Um, secondly, I still do the Psalms every month. Uh, you might, that is to say, I use the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so I read, pray psalms uh, morning and evening and you get through all 150 every month and uh david i mean if you the advantage of doing that is you you run the gamut of it and um every day there's something that just speaks right to you because the psalms go through every possible uh you might say emotional condition you can be in any situation right that, that human beings can have and so we're up and down a lot as you know You you get some good news or, you know, your wife or I, you know, in my case, it's me really feeling good and we go do something. And as you know, uh, ordinary things, if you do them well and you're feeling good that day, can be more precious than they used to be. You took them for granted. And so those days, the psalms, you just hit a psalm that's filled with Thanksgiving. And other days you hit a psalm that, I mean, you're always hitting psalms that are exactly what you were feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And it's just so, I don't know what to say. It's so empowering. I hate to use that word. (laughs) I I shouldn't have used that word. It's just so overused. Um, it's it, but it is empowering to see it reflected in the word of God. And then very often more eloquently,
2: sometimes the depth of the anger or the questions of God feel like, wow, you know, it's, it's even stronger than I would express it, but it is, it taps into something deeper in me. It's one of the things, uh, I think my confidence in scripture as I've grown older has only increased because Ecclesiastes feels like it's so written for an ambitious person like yeah. me who who, yeah. who realizes all the end of this ambition isn't going to amount for much. Or in the case of Psalms, uh, a, a place for, you know, uh, crying out to the Lord, Lamentations, it's such a fascinating uh, part of the story of Lamentations, like the greatest thy faithfulness. Ah, uh, that song actually is birthed in a in a lament, and uh, that was my wife's Jill's favorite song, and even sung at our wedding. And so this idea of God was tying a whole thread of His His goodness for us, even in our sorrow, uh, from the very first day that our wedding began. And and so then she when she said, "Hey, I want you to play my funeral to play," you know, "Great is Thy faithfulness." It was a pretty tough day, uh, but the sense in which the the goodness of God to to provide for us yeah. a scriptural basis for Lament and uh, and for you know for our suffering has been for me a a place that I couldn't I couldn't have imagined going and I couldn't have imagined it providing a a greater anchor to my soul uh, than it has.
0: Oh, I feel like I'm on holy ground. Well, I do want to talk about your book, uh, Hope in Times of Fear. Um, the world needs hope. We need hope. People are going leaders listening, pastors listening. I think you're right. They're very unaffirmed for the last year. There have been no wins or very few. Many listeners are navigating their own personal health crisis or the death of a loved one or um, dissolution of a board or tribalization and politics and division in the congregation and so on. Close us on some hope. Tell us what's in the book. Obviously, it's about the resurrection, but I would love for you just to give us a pastoral word as we, we close up.
1: Well, I re- the book was originally, um, was supposed to be a kind of a, a short book. Yeah. You might say a, a companion book to a book I wrote not that long ago on, on Christmas, which was a series of little meditations on Christmas. So actually my publisher originally said, how about a book on Easter? You know, some meditations on Easter. So I had already started the book and then the pandemic hit and then I got, I got the cancer diagnosis and and here i'm working on the resurrection and well that that it didn't change it technically it just it certainly expanded it certainly made this much more i don't know how to say it i mean obviously working on a book day after day when you're struggling with all the the bad news about your cancer and yet the book is just filled with all the good news I and mean, i mean the resurrection um is First of all, if the resurrection happened, then everything's going to be okay, okay? Um, And that's the first chapter in the book. So I went back and redid the Tom Wright, the N.T. Wright, um, uh, so much of his scholarship, not just his big, thick book, which is The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is the best book written on the resurrection in the last 100 years, but he's actually done other work since then. And so I put all that together, plus a few other, my, some of my own thoughts, but not mainly his thoughts in chapter one, because if, if the resurrection happened and whatever else, it's going to be okay. The other thing though is we don't know what to do with the resurrection practically. You know, I have a, I have a systematic theology of Charles Hodge, who was a Princeton theologian, you know, uh, in his systematic theology, 128 pages on the cross, on the, on the death of Christ, four on the resurrection. Because we we tend to think, well, the resurrection it happened and that proves he's the son of God. But how does that change my life? It's sort of like a, a magic trick almost that proves that God, you know, is real. But actually, the resurrection does change everything because if the resurrection happened, not only is there hope and that means confidence in the future, but secondly, the resurrection actually teaches the New Testament teaches that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He brought the powers of the age to come. That's what, into our world now. So the kingdom of God is present, but not present, as as you heard before. If you just read what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels about the kingdom, it's very confusing because sometimes he talks about the the kingdom as if it's present. It's going to be here. It's here. Now it's in your midst. Other times he talks about when I come back, you know, with all my angels to, To bring the kingdom and you say, well, is it here or is it not here? And the answer is yeah. Uh, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought the powers of the age to come through the Holy Spirit into our lives now. The very, the very power that's going to actually completely cleanse the world of all suffering, evil and death at the end of time is already in our lives now. Not fully, but partially. And what's perfect about that is It's just perfect for every day. You know why? Because on the one hand, it keeps you from either um, a naive optimism that if I really pray, I'll be healed. And anybody who's not healed, you're not praying. Well, that's an over-realized view of the kingdom. It's that you're acting as if the kingdom is completely present. Well, it's not. Or we're going to get out there, we're going to change the world and get rid of all the systemic racism. Well, you're not. Because not until Jesus comes back. On the other hand, if you're just too pessimistic, you know, we're defeated. There's no reason to pray. God never heals anymore. There's no reason we can make any changes. Things are terrible. The culture is falling apart. Let's get the wagons together in a circle and just hold hands. That's also, that's not the doctrine of the resurrection. You've got a real power, the power of the age to come. That's Hebrews talks about that, is in your life now. And, and amazing things can happen. So it's, pastorally, it's, it's perfect. And it's, Because it keeps me from being either cynical or naive. And whenever I tend to cynicism, the the doctrine of the resurrection pulls me back. When I tend into naivete and and start to get like, oh, everything's going to be fine now because we started, you know, I got a good scan. And then forgetting, no, I'm sorry. It's not till the very end of time. Will everything be okay? So the resurrection is not something that just is a wonderful sign of it's not an, just an apologetic proof that god exists or that jesus was the son of god it's actually something i get it got to get out every single day the other thing by the way Carrie. the other thing is it's the resurrection is paired with the death of christ it's the death and resurrection of christ that saved us which means god tends to work through weakness so that when you know you're going to experience a lot of weakness then you have to say but god brings resurrection Elizabeth Elliott, it was a good teacher of ours at Gordon-Conwell. She used to say, everything in the Christian life is is a resurrection after a death. So she says, for example, if somebody wrongs you, you you might decide, I'm just going to go pay them back. I'm just going to tell them how awful they are. Or I could forgive them in my heart and then go and and urge them to see what they've done wrong. She says that that's like a death because you want to just scratch their eyes out, but you don't. You, I'm going to forgive. And so it's like a death. But if you don't go through that death, probably if you just go and scratch their eyes out, that person will not listen to you. They'll just get worse at what they are doing. And your friendship is over. But if you go through the death of forgiveness, in a sense, there's the possibility of a resurrection of that your, your friend might actually see the, the, the truth and a resurrection of, of the relationship. And she says, everything is like that. Every time you obey God, you're sort of dying to your self-will, and yet you're rising again to become a person of virtue, and eventually you're going to really die in order to be raised. And so everything in the Christian life and in life is about death and resurrection. So that so it's not right now only have four pages on the resurrection. I wrote 230. <laughs> I've corrected Charles Hodge, and I sure hope that he appreciates it. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Tim, you've been uh, fantastically generous with your time. And I just want to echo what David said when we began. I, I just personally am so grateful uh, for you, for your ministry, for your writing. Um, keep writing. We're going to keep praying for you. We are in your corner. And uh, thank you so, so much for being with us today.
1: I really think that the good scans and all that are largely because of prayer. And David certainly knows what it's like to have your whole family just lift, you know, basically kind of like, moving along on other people's prayers. Exactly. You, really, you, really, you can tell the difference. You know when people are praying. So thank you.
0: Man, I'll tell you that was very, very profoundly moving, and I'm so grateful, like so many of you are, for Tim and his contribution. We're praying for many, many more years, and you know, it was good to hear Tim say that our prayers really do matter, and he feels them. He and Kathy feel them. So, uh, man, thanks so much for listening, guys. We really, really appreciate you. We're with you. This continues to morph, and that's why we started this podcast, right, just over a year ago, is we wanted to bring you uh, the very best that we could in terms of how to lead in the midst of a crisis and really what has become an ongoing unstable situation. And to help you with that, we are going on the ground in South Florida, Columbus, Kansas City, and Dallas-Fort Worth. And that's Barna, myself, and Glue are partnering to kick off a new initiative to do research on a local city level and provide powerful and free new tools to unite and equip churches to effectively reach and engage people in their communities. If you want to know more, if you're in South Florida, Columbus, Kansas City, or Dallas-Fort Worth, simply go to churchpulseweekly.org. we got some live events in April for you. I'll be participating along with David Kinnaman, Barna, and other great guests. So uh, hopefully we'll see you there. Once again, all things Church Pulse Weekly at churchpulseweekly.org. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social. Thank you so much for all you do. We'll catch you next time with a fresh episode. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly
1: Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.